Actually, this is completely yeah. random, but did you see the new Jacobin game that came out? Have you seen this? No. It's called, like, it's called Class War. <laughs> did Jacobin release it, or is it it's, like... It's a, like a Jacobin-made, like, in-house... They've been working on it, I think, for, like, years, and it's sort of like... I haven't played it, but it sort of looks like Monopoly, like, for DSA people or something. That's yeah. very So you're, you're going to have to get them on as well. I guess, yeah. You know what? It's funny. I actually... I got one of the editors from Zero Books on ages ago because of some... I forget I forget even why. I think it was a book that they had written. Um, so it'll be funny to to then, like, kind of square the circle and get Jacobin on as well to talk yeah. about Class War. Yeah, I just saw it on, on Twitter, but people say it's really fun to play, but, you know. Hmm. Um, I know that's often that's often like a thing that happens with left games. It's like um, uh, they kind of have the ideology, but they aren't fun to play. This has been right. like a, a thing that I've been... <laughs> right, or, I mean, we'll probably get into this too, or like, mm. or like they're kind of skinned left, but the mechanic yeah. is still just the same dumb like RPG mechanic that you've played Absolutely. a million times or whatever. Yeah. And so the question is like, is the mechanic reactionary while the skin is it, it tries not to be or something? That's a super interesting question. Yeah. Um, actually, I mean, this is all interesting. So we'll, we'll just we'll just keep this in. Uh, welcome to No Cartridge Audio. My name is Trevor <laughs> Strunk. I'm Hegelbahn on Twitter. And I have with me today uh, someone who I, I uh, first approached your work in the academic sphere. Um, and uh, now you're uh, writing for um, Verso. And I, I think that we're not writing for Verso, but being published by Verso, uh, the freelance vocabulary got me, uh, which sort of puts you right in between the uh, popular culture and the academic, which is kind of the perfect spot to be these days. Um, I'm talking to Alexander Galloway um, of NYU and, of course, the the digital world uh, in general. Uh, Alexander, thanks for coming. Happy to be here. Yeah. No. So, tell us a little bit. Um, I wanna I wanna get back to this question of um, you know mechanics versus versus narrative because I think this is a really important distinction that a lot of people aren't super excited or super willing to make. Um, I think because like it it starts feeling a little stodgy, but I think it's also like super important. Um, yeah. But before we get there, uh, you have a book um, out coming out out. I have a copy. I can't yeah, remember if it, I have a copy. Like right about now, basically. Okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I know how this goes. I yeah. I my book, my book uh, story mode is out on the fifteenth, but tons of people seem to have it. So, it's a it's a mystery. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, your book's called Uncomputable. It is a uh, well. It is. It was described to me as sort of a a story about uh, Guy Debord, the the famous uh, theorist. Um, you know, maybe most famous to to our uh, listeners as um, one of the situationists who thought mm. thought a lot about uh, the idea of the spectacle, the society of the spectacle, which has been, of course, um, huge in our current spectacular society. Mm. Um, but uh, apparently, also really into developing video games. So, uh, <laughs> you wanna do you wanna tell us that story? Yeah, I mean, you know, people probably encountered Guy Debord maybe in a college course and read, you know, Society of the Spectacle or or sat through one of his his like interesting but didactic films. You know, he's this avant-garde figure. He's also held up as one of the animating kind of, you know, background behind the the May 1968 right. um, uprisings in, in France, right? Um, so it was sort of surprising for me to hit on um, a few years back to hit on this little detail that I, I had no idea about, which is that 
he formed his own game company. Um, so interesting. With his publisher in, was it 1977 or 78, right in there, and um, released a game. And he designed this game. It's uh, He called it the Game of War. Um, and it's based on, um, it's a pretty classic type of game design. It's based on old war games, like in the kind of Napoleon Clausewitz style, where it you seems have, very have chess two. oriented too, sort of like in that. Yeah, there's like, there's, there's some element like to it. Chess. Yeah, it's on a bigger board, mm -hmm. um, but it's like chess. Yeah, um, you have, you know, sort of like class based pieces that have different capacities and you move them around and you try to kind of. Um, deal with territory and take territory um, it has one element that that we could get into maybe that's pretty different which is that it has um what you might describe as a kind of like network layer on it which is super interesting mm -hmm. um and he calls these the the you could call them kind of like the lines of communication or like the supply logistical lines and so the board has um these sort of supply lines that are uh, crisscross the board and part of the strategy of the game is you have to sort of keep your own supply logistical lines intact or else your pieces become inert or you can try to block the opponent's lines and that could be a kind of you know tactical intervention or something so you know that's that's really interesting because there's like to to sort of like tie this to this idea of mechanics like this reminds me a lot of i mean it's a fairly common uh, mechanic for like difficulty for sort of like balancing the idea of, you know, uh, uh, are you on offense or defense? What, do you, mm. which, which way are you going to play? Like right. if you're, you know, even, even in like, you know, um, MMOs or like yep, big, big totally. RPGs or something like the idea of like, okay, you have to, you know, line up your shot or line up your attack this way. But I, right. I like the idea of it being lines of communication or lines of supply, because there mm -hmm. is something sort of like immediately, um, tactical from a political perspective there yeah um, and, and especially when you're thinking about the board thinking about the idea of like you know uh, a line of supply being simply like the line of sight between you and say uh, a billboard right like mm -hmm. like yeah <laughs> that very point. that that sense of like um distance really is really is played out there i wouldn't have actually thought of that without you connecting those two dots yeah yeah um, i struggled with 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 one thing which is that in in some senses the game that he designed, you know, he's this sort of like very radical avant-garde figure, but in some ways the game is like super traditional, right? Like it's not a kind of edgy, like you don't play as like a, re a revolutionary or a militant or a, you know, whatever. Um, yeah. And so I sort of struggled with like, why is he doing this sort of throwback game to Napoleon and Clausewitz rather than talking about like asymmetric warfare and like urban conflict and, you know, irregular um, you know, like the mob, the rabble, the riot, like that would be a, maybe a more interesting, relevant, current sort of postmodern type way to think about game design. And so that's why I like the, the lines of communication, because yeah. they make me think that, oh, well, he was thinking about networks and he was thinking about kind of communication and, and touch and, and connection, which are of course super important for the era that we live in now. Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, like one of the things about producing video games, especially in the the early moments in the 70s and, and early 80s, like before graphical, um, I don't know, before graphical fidelity became uh, almost to the point where you can imagine it being um, uh, mimetic in some ways. Mm. Like I think in some ways the question of what a game was doing was not like 
was a little blurred that way where in, in fact like thinking about a game kind of presenting some um revolutionary idea would probably be along the same lines as like a thought experiment or something like that mm. as opposed to like right. you know, I, I could almost see and i mean i'm putting mm -hmm. words into his mouth I, I didn't talk to him about this but like i could almost see DeBoer saying something along the lines of like you know if you wanted to write about irregular warfare you wanted to write about say you know the Viet Cong or or mm -hmm. the abilities in in urban centers to to create uh solidarity and and discord um I think you'd say like you should write a book about that <laughs> that's like right. it's, it's not and, and and in some ways I I wonder if he's not still right like I'd wonder what you what you think about the the potential of uh that kind of mimetic approach like like making a game about being the mob or making a game about right we have games um that are ostensibly sort of like left wing every so often they're, they're, they're rare um but typically sort of like just kind of either recreate existing structures or sort of exist as as you say like a skinned left game where, yeah, where right it has the right it has the right flags up uh right. but, but not really right. doing anything particularly right. revolutionary right, right. yeah and you know representation is important so skins etc can be super important but totally i true. but i also think it's it's crucial to shine a light on um, the mechanic, you know, the back end, sort of like what we're talking about in the beginning. And because it's easy to think, well, if you just skin a game with a certain kind of like, you know, I don't know, like militant mojo or something that, that, that it changes the dynamic entirely. Mm -hmm. But if let's say you're playing a game, you know, most, so many games are basically like economic management simulators, you know, like you have like little tokens and they, they have to accrue something on one scale and then they get to yeah. spend something on another scale you're always trying to figure out how to break the system like any sort of good capitalist would right uh, yeah yeah figure yeah. out how to how to duplicate or or figure out how to get so much money that you don't even need money anymore yeah no for sure yeah yeah so so for me the most interesting and it's a big challenge but the most interesting kinds of games and game to, like in experimental games are the ones that try to really mess with those mechanics in interesting ways or to completely mm. undo them or just do them in a totally different way. Right. Mm. Like what if you don't, what if you're not measuring and counting things? Like what if it isn't about um, consumption and, and expenditure, right. Input and output. Yeah. Um, what if it's about ambiguity or, you know, um, some kind of affective experience or something like that. So anyway, that's not what Guy Debord did at all. He did, <laughs> he, he designed what is a completely conventional, traditional type um, game. But I think for him, he thought this game was a way to learn like the eternal rules of strategy. Mm. Like he had this very grandiose notion about like, um, well, if you want to go to war, you have to learn the, the, you have to learn what tactics and strategy are. But, you know, if you also want to be a political activist or a militant of, of some kind, well, you better also know the rules of strategy, right? So he thought, yeah. he thought, as far as I can tell, he thought this game that he designed, if it had a relation to the left, would be about sort of like understanding tactical and strategic action. It's interesting because thinking about DeBoard, I, I, and this might just be a personal uh, a sort of um, association, but I always think about DeBoard and, um, and Adorno in, in sort of the same breath. And in part because, I mean, mm. Adorno, uh, uh, Theodore Adorno is like so obsessed with the same kind of like simulacrum, uh, but under a different name, mm. right? Like the question yeah. of like, you know, the most famous one being the culture industry, but I think it, it kind of 
Um, you can see it in, in aesthetic theory and stuff like that too. If, if people are interested in reading that, which, you know, it's good. It's hard. Um, but the, you know, like there's this through line in Adorno and uh, Debord where the radicalism of the, the question of like the simul the simulacrum, or uh, I guess like the, the culture, the cultural ideology, uh, ideological object, like it necessarily kind of falls back on this very, I don't want to say conservative because that's a little unfair, but like traditional understanding of the world, right? Like mm. Adorno is always about autonomy in, in a sort mm. of like um, almost like a, a neoclassicist sense. Mm-hmm. Um, that might not be, might not be right, but like it, it's not quite as disruptive as the modernists. It's, it's looking yeah. back to like a previous sort of artistic wholeness. And similarly, I mean, if you're talking mm-hmm. about the society of the spectacle with Debord, you're talking about like, you know, what is our current spectacular society doing that is like different somehow than an ideal society, which ostensibly existed mm-hmm. somewhere in the past. And like, there are these levels of like, I, I think it's interesting that like for Debord, it comes back to mm-hmm. learning war as one would if one were Napoleon, right? Like there is this return yeah. to a sort of like foundational knowledge. Um, I mean, do he you had, that, you know, Debord was, had an unironic like love for, um, Napoleon, you know, he was, he was committed to this kind of like, like he would watch old Hollywood films like charge of the light brigade that, um, and we know this because he sampled those films and, and incorporated them into his own films. You know, he'd watch these, these great like Hollywood epics about like going to battle and, and riding in the cavalry and things like that. And I really think it was, it was unironic, you know, he was sort of like, thrilled by um that sense of um sort of glory or something like that right yeah is there something i mean is there something to that uh in your mind like something to that unironic approach right like i think like the modern left and i count myself in, in this in this estimation as well like modern left-wing thinkers or actors or whatever are often like extremely ironic uh sort of there, there <laughs> yeah. is a detachment yeah. right yeah. at, at yeah. all times I, you know, I wonder is, do you think that there is a sense of, um, I don't know, power or potentiality mm-hmm. to approaching these things with this kind yeah. of like unironic love, or is this just like, is he, is he just like engaging in mystification himself? Yeah. So a friend of mine once described Gita Bord as abrasively anachronistic, which I think <laughs> is a, is a good, is a good way to put it. Yeah. In other words, like, if the world is sincere, he wants to be ironic. But if the world is ironic, maybe he wants to do this sort of throwback sincerity move or something okay. like that. So I think that's that's one way to understand it. You know, like because you could pose a similar question, which is, why was he obsessed with Hollywood movies? You know, when he made his movies, and you right. know, maybe there's this sort of like avant-garde judo move happening you know that you like engage with the very thing that you find most contemptible or something like that and so yeah there's probably an ironic um facet to that but i think maybe he's doing a similar thing with with games that he's he's engaging with um it's funny like in the i haven't actually seen it because it opened um more recently but apparently in the archive in in paris they actually have preserved um, Gita Board's little toy army guys that he used to play with. No way. Um, they're in like a shoebox or something in in the basement of the Bibliothèque Nationale. Or I really like want to see that. I haven't that... seen them in person, so I can't 
say much about them, but I think there are some photos on, of them online. And that's incredible. Anyway, I, br- I bring that up, which because that's like, like really odd, right? Like, like he's 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 sort of uh, regressing into this larval form of like a eight year old boy playing with with army guys on the uh, you know on the kitchen table or something. And so yeah. I don't know. A lot of it is a kind of a mystery. Um, he it's does this very, very late in life. It's like, like one of the last things he ever does. Hmm. Um, so some people have described it as a kind of retirement project. You know, maybe he just got kind of old and boring in his in his old age. Um, yeah, that, that's all plausible as well. I think it's interesting to think about the game as sort of like a boring retirement project. Cause I think like <laughs> a lot of, a lot of, I mean, because I'm, I'm boring and feel like I need to retire. Uh, no, because like the, you know, like the, um, I think the game, especially thinking about it in terms of war simulation and, and thinking about later stuff like, you know, the Sid Meier games or whatever are mm. like, or flight simulators or something were like mm. for a time played exclusively by, um, you know, middle-aged men who could afford the setup and like wanted a little leisure time after things were over to like move around armies and civil war battles or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and like, but I, I, I wonder like how, so I think that's an easy way to explain it. And as you say, a plausible way of explaining it. I'm certainly not discounting the the option, um, but you've played it more than me. I've played it a little bit and I think it's, it's a compelling game from a mechanical standpoint. Mm. Now, I think a lot of games that aren't, you know, super interesting politically are fun from a political standpoint to the point, like, you know, I don't think chess is particularly interesting from a political standpoint. Mm, right. Maybe someone could convince me otherwise, but I think it's a fun game. Yeah. Um, checkers yeah. or whatever. Right. Um, but you've played more of it. Is there like, what is the overall effect of playing this game? I mean, does it, I, I know a lot of games make us sort of uh, start to understand different things strategically or start to look at, you know, different lines of um, uh, tactical engagement within the board itself. Um, yeah. For modern games, like when they include, you know, like manipulation of time, you start thinking about time as a mechanic mm-hmm. as opposed to just like a thing that's happening around you. So is there any sort yeah, of yeah. like, is there anything kind of like activated in terms of like lines of thought uh, mm. that come along with playing uh, DeBoard's game um, a little more, say, than the average person has? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I should say that I'm still learning a lot about the game. You know, I've mm. studied the game really closely. And part of that study was to uh, model the game in software. So, you know, yeah. I'm certainly currently beta testing a version of the game for Mac OS and, and iOS, which is sort of my, like, perverted revenge on Gita Board that he's going to be, like, you know has this afterlife like on people's iPads and stuff, which I think he would hate of, that kind of funny. Yeah. He yeah. would definitely hate that. Um, but you know, he was kind of a jerk, so he, he, he deserves it. Um, but uh, <laughs> my big surprise was just that it's a decent, it's like a halfway decently designed game, which is, which is, which is pretty cool. You know, yeah. like for somebody who, you know, really is, is we think of as a filmmaker and and um, an author, right? Like an author of you know sort of leftist theory. Absolutely, tracks. it's not necessarily true that you could just take a lateral step and with the snap of the fingers become a good game designer, right? I mean, for the most part, you would think that it wouldn't be that it, way. Yeah, right? for like, the most part, you think it would suck, right? Yeah, sort exactly. Like, when, like I'm thinking, when, you know, like, most of like, the most of the theorists who can make that like move to a more schematic way of thinking 
you know, we're typically kind of like are, are also typically sort of a punchline for that, right? Like yeah. people make fun of Jameson's uh diagram. I, I I like Jameson a lot, but like people make fun of Frederick Jameson's diagrams all the time, right? Like the stuff <laughs> the, oh yeah, like, the, he's obsessed <laughs> with the semiotic square. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? Because um, they, I mean, it's it's basically like you know you're showing that part of your mind, and like this doesn't yeah. like this doesn't chart. Like you're you're I mean, better at on. the other one. Everyone's everyone's had that like one philosophy professor who like tries to make art or something, and it's always sucks, right. So. No, that too. <laughs> so so yeah, I was I was pleasantly surprised that it's actually a pretty decently well designed game. Meaning, you can it has good replayability. Like, yeah, you know, I played this game a lot, and maybe I'm starting to get bored of it or something. But it, you can play it a fair amount and over and over again. And you know, it has what game designers call balance. It has really good balance. Yeah. Meaning, um, there aren't sort of these like dumb hangups that you hit over and over again, you know, like, Oh, if you just like camp on this one supply depot, you'll always win. Or if you, you know, configure this one class in this one certain way, you'll have like a certain advantage. So anyway, it has like pretty um, amazing, decent balance and has good replayability. Um, and then the other thing I'll just mention in terms of design, you're asking about design, which goes back to what we were talking about before. He, he uses a just like an age-old conceit in game design, which is about, you brought this up, and I think I think in the context of um, uh, just, just before when we were talking about, um, uh, what was it, the, uh, uh, um, the, the, the um, oh God, I'm spacing in the name right now, but the idea is that if you, if you okay. advance, the more you advance further forward, the more your rear flank becomes vulnerable. And so that's like a mm -hmm. big part of the game. So it's not difficult to advance, but as soon as you do that, you sort of pay a cost in vulnerability in another side. And so that dynamic is kind of at the heart of, of the game. Yeah. That's fascinating that he was able to balance that when we see like, you know, the game game producers at this point constantly like releasing balance patches the idea yeah. that something needs to be cut back or something needs to be like advanced in order to make the gameplay more fun again yeah like that that he was able to hit on it. i mean it, you know fairly simplistic not yeah. simplistic but like there's only a number of things he's he's balancing it's not you know he doesn't have a bunch of assets or whatever totally and he's it, doing it's it, apples and oranges and, but like, and he's doing it before yeah. the data driven era right like if you're in blizzard how do you do balance today well you do it because you run statistics on on gameplay measurement <laughs> right. you know like at balance is is yeah it's an art form sure you know blizzard is historically that's like how they made their name because they were so good at it but in this day and age it's it's right. a data-driven thing it's you know you you get you get balanced well, sure. an algorithm. You look at whatever character's not used, right? You say like, exactly. what character am I exactly. am I not getting any value out of? What who? Yes. And I mean, you have a million people giving you their subjective opinions. Devor didn't have tier lists and stuff like that. It wasn't like he was <laughs> hearing from the French people. <laughs> like, this class yeah, so is terrible. Made, it's, um, it's D tier. Uh, so he made sort of like a like a museum kind of uh, a precious like editioned version of it in 1978. But then he made a kind of okay. uh, mass-produced version a decade later in the '80s, um, which really? I've I've seen pictures of, but I've never actually seen the original. But it was sort of a Monopoly-style version that I think you could just buy in a store with oh, a cardboard board, like a like a oh, like a physical game. Yeah, oh, that's a, neat. The physical one, yeah, because the original one he made was fabricated in metal, and it was this very precious art object. Right. He made four. He made four of them, sure. or maybe five of them. It's it's unclear. 
Um, and I have seen of one of one of those in person. Uh, Mackenzie Wark and I once um, cool. snuck into an art show and 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 where this thing was being displayed, and we got to play it. The curator let us play it for a little while. So, um, so that was that was the, my first hand kind of encounter with the game. But he did commercialize it um, a decade afterwards in the eighties um, after his publisher died. They wanted to um, try to drum up some money. So. <laughs> um, yeah, as, but you know you there do. is a kind like of storied history. What? No, I said as you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, and and you know, you know, like you're saying. Marcel oh, sorry, Duch I cut you off. You were saying there was a storied history. Oh, just you know, like Marcel Duchamp was obsessed with chess, and you know, so I think we could maybe put Guidebord in a larger tradition of sort of art figures or avant-garde figures um, turning to games for one reason or another. That's an interesting question. Actually, it, it sort of uh, leaks me back to your your theory or your theory, your, your writing. Um, thinking about like uh, so, the question of play, right? Is this is this much broader question within within theoretical circles? Um, I mean, you mentioned Mackenzie Work, who for for people, in case you're not listening, I know that um, pretty sure that the Range Touch, which is a, a more theoretical uh, digital humanities uh, based podcast, has covered. Uh, works work, but if not, uh, she's a wonderful uh, theorist um, who deals a lot with play. But that that like that sense of play, you you and work do it. But then also thinking about like figures like Derrida, figures like uh, you know even figures like Hegel or 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 Kant or something like. There's this uh, the, the the German idealist. There's this concept of play that people are obsessed with. The, the sort of like frivolity and and you know it's natural. It's a totally good philosophical. Bailiwick. Um, I wonder, like, thinking about play in this way, right? Like, as as it as it corresponds to um, not just left thinking, but like sort of like critical, theoretical, philosophical thinking. Yeah. Like, like, how do you position play within your own work? Like, what is what is the sort of like space of gameplay for you as as a thinker? Yeah, that's a great question, and you know, bringing up. Um, bringing up how play, you know, figures in, 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 in theoretical writing. And you're absolutely right. There is this sort of mid 20th century moment where play emerges um, and we're sort of still in that moment or reemerges in a new form. So, you know, you get anthropologists totally. who are obsessed with play. Um, you know, Roger Kelois famously, you get people who are sort of focusing on play, I think as an escape from the um, structured kind of dictatorial aspects of, 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 of daily life. Right. So, you know, I mean, bless him, Derrida. I mean, you know, he, 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 you know, he, he sort of play is this sort of concept that like, um, you know, sometimes I joke that like play, you know, play is the only concept that survived the 20th century, you know, like, the subject dead, you know, the, the ego dead, uh, I, you know, uh, you know, like it explains why everyone was talking about Bergson all the time. They were just like, you know, they were just like, Oh, someone's laughing. I, I get that. Yeah, right. So, so every, everything is sort of, you know, endlessly critiqued, deconstructed, you know, it's et cetera. But then you get concepts like play that aren't, you know, that are, that are this sort of weird redemptive site of escape, um, 
you know, maybe in, in Deleuze and Guattari, it wouldn't be played so much as like a line of flight or something like that. Right. Right. Um, yeah. And that isn't a criticism. I'm not bringing this as a criticism. It's more of a characterization that it's just really interesting how play emerges as a kind of, um, a kind of utopian or redemptive category. Um, you know, and it's not yeah. its own baggage. I mean, play is like what, what, you know, like, like little kids do and, 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 um, and, and so maybe it kind of infantilizes it, people in, in a certain way, you know, maybe it's steeped in a kind of romantic nostalgia, right. For like mm-hmm. form yeah. of everyday experience that, um, is, uh, joyful and not that any of this is bad, but it's like kind of joyful and, and pure, and unmarred by the excesses of capitalism um yeah so so that's how i i I don't really i'm not a derrida guy so that's not the direction i would no no me i i i I like to use him as a as a yardstick but but, yeah yeah. (laughs) but you're absolutely Uh, right that no i mean play is this kind of like pure category it's in baudrillard it's in like a ton of people from that period yeah, I'm actually I'm forgetting like half the name. I'm glad you said to losing Guattari because their their concept of sort of like lines of flight are absolutely what I was thinking there. Um, you know what's interesting though, of course, and, and and how you're describing it. I mean, if people listening to the podcast, uh, some some are, some aren't, um, are not familiar with like academic monographs, like. Uh, what I find anyway, this is always a, a fixation of mine when I was a student was. Um, that these monographs always end with a sort of utopian ending. Like you always have to have a good ending, right? You have to have something that, that the reader hangs on to. You're like, well, I've depressed you for 200 pages, but guess what? Like, yeah. and it, it always feels small. Um, not by, you know, necessarily a lot of these people are very critical and, and, and careful thinkers. And then, yeah. and the ending is, you know, but we, we all can laugh once a day or something yeah. like that. <laughs> it's fine. But um, I feel like play, play became popular in some ways because of that, because it is like the one thing you can sort of be like, but look, there's this, this one naive thing that isn't touched by biopolitics or isn't touched by the sort of like sphere of, of linguistic control or, or, um, you know, normative psychology or whatever you want to say. Right. Um, or as you say, capitalism, right? Like play can't totally be, you know, ground down by capitalism. There's always some sort of, at least in the theory, an impulse there. Right. Um, so I totally hear you. I think I think it is meant as this sort of like utopian happy ending, this kind of like thing we can always point to as um, the good thing at the end of the book. But I wonder, like, your work like really focuses on play in this much more critical way. I'll I'll put my cards on the table because I don't um, have a have a well. I don't know if I had a career to protect then either, but I, I wrote a piece for American literature uh, way back when um, that got revised and resubmitted a bunch of times before I just published it on non-site. Um, uh, instead, which was great. I loved publishing there. But uh, one of my revise and resubmits, I, I went through a bunch of um, digital humanities and just like said why I didn't really agree with them. Um, I thought I was fine, but I was told that it was not nice, not very nice to tell people why I didn't like their work. Um, as I recall, I'm not just saying because you're here. As I recall, yours was one of the only ones that I was like, yeah, I, I like this guy. Um, really? Uh, yeah, no, you got you got out unscathed. I, I, I'm happy I must to have say. done something wrong then. <laughs> But no, like I, uh, one of the things that I, that I found, <laughs> one of the things that I, I found like frustrating about digital humanities and still do, um, is one of the reasons I started this podcast was because was that digital humanities seems very fixated on 
the mode of production, which, which in some ways is fine. Um, but thinking about the archive, thinking about the digital as a way of expressing information and then leaving the, what, you know, what that information is up to a sort of like a future potentiality. Mm, um, yeah. what, what I like about your work is that it deals seriously with the idea of the play itself, the information itself, the game, right? Like mm -hmm. the actual sort of object of play is, it, it's important to your work as far as I've read it anyway. And I'm, you know, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but, um, I wonder, like, what, why, why, why do you focus when, when you do on that kind of thing? Like, why focus on the the digital the digital um, realm of play? Like, there's, it's something I've asked myself a lot, and something I've written about um, at too great length. Where, you know, th there's so many options to think about in the world. Why, why sort of digital play? Why games? Why these things that are, seem so ephemeral, but also can kind of like pack a big punch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this, you know, this book, Uncomputable, that's that that's just coming out now is um, a little bit weird for me because it it's actually structured around um, a series of um, things that I had to practically make. So you, you're asking, like, why do I want to play or what I'm, why I'm interested in, in play? And, yeah, that's a big part of this book that um, this this is you know, in some ways, a kind of reflective, more theoretical book, but it's really a very practical hands-on book where I look at a series of media objects, media artifacts, including the Gita board game. Um, but right. uh, I try to understand them by actually restaging them and rebuilding them. So the Gita board game, he makes, uh, you know, in the real world, I port it to computer. There are other chapters about different topics where I'm also either writing code or physically making certain things. And the answer to your question is that, um, and this sounds like a cliche, but it's 100% true, that practical knowledge, there's just stuff you get through practical knowledge that you can never get through speculation and and just normal mm -hmm. kind of uh, cognition, right? Like, Interesting. it's so, so, you know, I mean, I'm a Marxist, so the theory practice hybrid is is like deeply ingrained in how i was taught and what i believe in and so like that 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 to me is not not maybe a, a, a so much of a stretch but um the, it is really true what they say you know like you can listen to mozart all you want but unless you actually learn the scales and learn the melodies and learn the you know, counterpoints and da 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 you you won't gain a you, you know if you do that you'll gain a completely different perspective on things and so the one anecdote that I'll just tell you quickly to 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 illustrate what I mean Please. by by practical knowledge and its value is um, my I wrote a lot I write uh, the whole the whole kind of ending of, of the book is about this Gita board game of war and I was struggling with what I would write about with this well could i narrate like my project of porting it to the computer well okay maybe that's interesting but maybe it's not so interesting um but what happened is when i was um building the game and then debugging it is i discovered all of these errors in Guy Debord's mm. original documentation of the game and I discovered all of these errors. He wrote a book with his wife about the game. So I, that was one of my primary sources. And I went through it and the, and the gameplay was just like riddled with mistakes and errors. And it's funny because I never, ever would have caught them. It was, it was the software that caught them, 
the software said like, hey, you yeah. can't make this move. This move's illegal. Uh, hey, you can't make this other move. This other move is illegal. And so I, I use that anecdote to illustrate that there is a certain, like this, this was a kind of mystery then that I had to therefore solve. Like, why is this game riddled with errors? What does it mean that these kind of quote, quote unquote cheats were published in the book and were never caught? You know, the book got reprinted, it got translated, nobody ever caught these mistakes. And so, and so, so that was a kind of actual archival discovery that I never would have hit on unless I had, um, done this sort of enacted practical mode of investigation. You know, it's really interesting too, because thinking about, um, you know, I was, I was a guest on a podcast recently and I, um, I had a friend, um, who works at a game company message me and they're really upset with me. Um, and we, we hashed it out. Uh, but, uh, they were really upset with me because they, they, they had interpreted something I'd said where I said, you know, playing video games isn't work. Um, the the thing I was saying there was was in reference to speed running, which is like amazing work, amazingly cool stuff to watch. It's really neat. Um, I don't know any speedrunners who would say that it's like work in the kind of like material sense. Maybe they would. I'd be super interested to hear what they they have to say about that. But I was sort of saying, yeah, you know, typically playing a video game isn't work. Um, it's kind of a, a version of leisure. And they said, you know, this is a is a rough thing to hear when you're a tester. Like it's a rough thing to hear when you're when you're doing Q and A like on, on these games and it's you know these backbreaking hours where you're in love with these games because you spent so much time with them but you also hate them like you're angry at them too, and you know my, my thought was oh gosh like I I totally didn't mean that like that is clearly work, um, and what you're describing is like this really interesting distinction right which maybe highlights my own um, slippage there, uh, but also maybe why I think this which is that you know. When we think about video games now, there are teams that make them, right? There are the designers, but then also a bunch of people who enact the logic of the game. And in some ways, Devord is living this like fantastical version of games, this kind of like er myth of of the game, where like one person comes up with the game and Matt and like, you know, it is a passion project, it's an auteur, right? But even then, you know, you you putting it onto onto something that is like a more like rigid form in, in the digital saying like, you know, your software saying like, can't do this, can't do this, can't do this. All of a sudden you realize like, oh geez, I need, I need to like, I need to play through this. I need to perform extra labor to make this happen. And there does ultimately become this distinction between like intellectual and then material. I mean, it's a dialectic, but like, you know, the, there is a distinction between like the material stuff you have to do of like finding the bugs, fixing the bugs, and then also imagining the game. And it's, it, it's, I find it really interesting that that came out during your writing about the game, kind of like as a, almost as like a, a not even like a, 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 a eulogy, but as like a resurrection of it. That's like super interesting that that like that blind spot for DeBoard comes out and it can be like teased out by your work. That's really cool. Yeah. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier around play and like, what are the politics of play? And I think the politics of play have changed a ton since, let's say, you know, the 60s or the 70s or something. I think you might be right. And, <laughs> and, and I think what you're getting at is exactly true, which and a lot of people have written about this, like the either play becoming labor or, you know, labor maybe even taking on kind of play aspects through gamification and things like that. Or let's Definitely. just say whatever, the blurring of the two together, you know, so you have like... Um, I mean, we all know that any hardcore gamer is is extremely 
you know, it's, it's like a lot of effort and you have to be committed and yeah, it's commitment there there. It's a time commitment. It like takes a toll on your body. It's like your, your brain is becoming attuned to like, you know, min maxing extremely like precise variables and, um, Absolutely. And so, you know, and then on the back end, you know, all of that labor is providing valuable input that is then captured and extracted, um, maybe in, in sort of mundane ways, like we talked about a second ago, just to like improve gameplay, or maybe in, in more nefarious ways, like, like, you know, everybody knows the current economy is based on the extraction of unpaid micro labor from, from all of us. And, and gaming is, is a big yep. part of that. So, um, it's always nice to find new ways to get surplus labor value. Yeah, totally. So, so I think there's this sort of like, um, ambiguous or bittersweet assessment we have to make of play today. Hmm. I like that. I like, I, I, and not just because I said earlier that I didn't like what people, or I, I found it silly that this was always the case. I like that your book um, kind of has that bittersweet energy to it, where there's like there's something joyful about the idea of getting board making a game, and then there's something that comes out of it with those errors and with the labor that it takes to kind of like produce it into an iOS form. That it doesn't it doesn't contradict the joy of getting board making a like a cool game. Like it's still a great anecdote. It's just kind of a more complicated one yeah yeah well that's wonderful thank you so much um you know it, it i almost want to i almost want to reread your book now um i mean I, I i won't lie and say i read it carefully i only got it a couple days ago so i'll i'll, I'll read it more carefully this time um and uh and uh, I, I was told in graduate school that uh, you're supposed to say if you haven't read a book you're supposed to say i haven't read it recently <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good of course a lie. Yeah, it, no, it's a good tip. It really, really works quite well. Um, but uh, in in the academia is like, yeah, you know, someone asks you if if you've read a book and you say, read it. I haven't even taught it. <laughs> I haven't heard that one, but having taught many classes, uh, it rings painfully true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, no, I I'll, I'll have to read your book with the with the mindset to sort of that that level of repetition and recreation. It reminds me of um, uh, the, the the very interesting novel Remainder uh, by um, interesting not Cormac McCarthy, who I always want to say Tom McCarthy. Tom McCarthy, yeah, yeah, Tom McCarthy. Definitely, if you haven't read it, worth worth looking up about a a man who is constantly trying to recreate a feeling he has. Um, right through through simulated book. yeah sim- like hyper hyper yep. realistic simulation yeah which is not yeah yeah what we've been talking about yeah so it sort of it reminds me of kind of like a a very practical theoretical version of that so I I'm fascinated to to sort of think about that a little more um, where can I, I've kept you for a while so I, I'll let you go but where can people find your work where can people uh, buy this and and read your tweets and etc so the book is published by verso yeah you can get it on their website i think Anyone heard of 20 20 <laughs> off um <laughs> and oh, nice. that's probably better than than some large uh bookseller based in seattle um and yeah. uh yeah you can email me i'm on twitter um yeah the game uh my version i got a kind of a 
a mean cease and desist letter from Gita Board's widow. So my version has a different name. It's, oh, called, no. Krieg, it's called Kriegspiel, uh, which is the the name for the game that Debord used in his in his letters and his personal notes before he gave the kind of formal name, the Game of War. So Kriegspiel is just the German word for uh, a generic word for war game. Um, and so you can Google mm-hmm. Kriegspiel, and we're doing beta testing currently. Um, for Mac OS and iOS. And um, I would love to get, you know, beta testers and then it should be uh, available for download and play um, in, I don't know, a few weeks or a month once, once all the bugs are. Super exciting. That's great. I'm sorry about the cease and desist letter. That must have been. Yeah, well, hopefully they won't follow up on it. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> I just send them back some gee to board as a, as a rejoinder. Um <laughs> It's, well, it's ironic uh, to say so the least. Be- okay. <laughs> yeah, it really is that like that you'd find the the estate of Guy Debord getting upset of you over copyright law. This is uh test with like appropriation and 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 straight up just like stealing. You know, I mean, he oh, would plagiarism. take Hollywood yeah, movies, no. and car- you know, comic comics and things like that. And uh, appro- I guess if you're an artist, you call it appropriation, right? It's not a stealing. It's- well, Debord is one. Of, Debord's one of those guys that like every time people are like, you know you know, in, in the corporate world or, or other worlds where like, it doesn't matter where they're like, did you plagiarize this? I'm like, did, how did plagiarism get to be such this, this dirty word? Of course it's via, you know, academia. We're also worried about plagiarizing and it has such, such extreme consequences. Um, but I always think about DeBoard as like, well, this guy loves plagiarism because like it, it could be powerful, but apparently to a point. Yeah. I mean, one of his um, most well, famous concepts is this word detournement, which means basically hijacking or, <laughs> Or um, yeah, detachment from yeah yeah exactly. So, but my goal was not to plagiarize anyone. You know, I'm not an artist really per se. I'm a programmer. I'm a researcher. I'm a professor. This is a a work of academic research. It's just that it's hands on rather than um, you know sitting in a comfy chair and thinking about it. Your chair does look comfy, though. People who can't see, like it is a comfy space still. So I'm glad you could you could manage to do both. Um, no, no, it's it's really interesting work. You guys should definitely check it out. It's um, I I I like Verso books a lot. I but I, I think this is one of the more interesting ones to come out in, in quite a while. So um, I'm very much looking forward to more people seeing it. And uh, yeah, Alexander, thanks so much for being on. Thanks a lot. Appreciated it. Hey, thanks for listening to No Cartridge. If you'd like to support us further, please consider going to patreon.com slash nocartridge or for a one-time donation, paypal.me slash hegelbon, H-E-G-E-L-B-O-N. It's really, really helpful for all of us to be able to support uh, the many people who make the show, uh, you know, myself included, but also our producers and various co-hosts and writers and artists. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to like, subscribe, share, any of those things that would let other people get the quality video game analysis that you've grown accustomed to.